are now going to look at the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is really difficult because, yes, Christ, we've talked about following Christ and the dialogue with him. And what does it mean to be transformed in him for that gift of the spirit, the, the new law that Thomas calls and the, and the catechism calls the spirit poured out into us, the grace that we receive? What, though, though, what is the role of the Sermon on the Mount? So we're going to have two classes here particularly because Pink Airs focused on it so much. The first one, we're going to look at Jesus as a teacher, uh, Jesus, his Torah as a rabbi, and the overall structure of the sermon. Um, I've told you all to read it yourself, and, and I think it's something over your priesthood. You're going to have plenty of time to read over, to meditate on. In addition, I'll give you some resources for going deeper with the Beatitudes themselves. Uh, I had one time done a whole class just on the Beatitudes. I'm not doing that because I want to focus on, in the second class, what role should the sermon play in the renewal of moral theology and in, in just moral theology itself? And what relationship does it have to the old law and how can we understand it? Taking some of Pinkairs' insight but then kind of putting it in dialogue with our good friend, Pope Benedict. So hopefully that next lesson, which I kind of worked on, the one we're going to do at the second part of today, will, um, will engage us and with some really good and fruitful discussion. So as we pass into this New Testament morality, we're all, then finally next week we're going to look at St. Paul, his teaching, and then we're going to move into anthropology. I should have, I think I have most of, but I'll have a lot of the, um, the readings posted. I have to add a couple, um, but you'll see that as it shows up on the stream on Google Classroom. So how, how can we sum up the moral teaching of the New Testament, Christ, Paul, and, and the other letters, uh, in relationship to the Old Testament? And, and I think the best way we can do it is saying that Christ gives us the new law, the new law of the gospel, the new law of grace, the new law of the Holy Spirit. And remember, we talked about what that new law is. The new law is the, the law poured into our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit written on the tablets of our hearts as opposed to the old law. The old law that was written on tablets, the old law that pointed out sin. We're going to see a lot more of this relation to the new law and the old law when we look at Paul. But right now, it is Christ fulfills the old law in his teaching, in his person. That's the first is, Christ fulfilling the law. But most importantly, in his teaching, particularly in the sermon, we see Jesus going from the extrinsic following of the law. You have heard it was say, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust in your heart. So again, if we believe that the new law is poured out as the Spirit into our hearts, well, then we need to worry about that interior disposition. And so it becomes transformation in Christ, growth in virtue, uh, growth or are being sanctified by the gift of the Spirit. 
And so we're going to see these themes sort of return to over and over again over the course of the coming few classes. But if we're going to sort of take this idea of old law and new law, so the old law was written on tablets, the new law is written on the heart, the old law would be, you know, words, I guess. The new law is the Holy Spirit. Even though there are words, as we'll see the Sermon on the Mount, the person who gave us the old law was Moses. And then here we have the new law is Jesus. Both of them prophets, both of them teachers. And Jesus specifically as a rabbi. Let's let's take a moment to look at that. And particularly if you read that section from Jesus of Nazareth on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching about the kingdom, there's some beautiful stuff to say about Christ as a rabbi, a spiritual teacher in the Jewish tradition. Of course, Jesus Being a good Jew, had knowledge of the scripture and of the Torah, the Jewish law. Like good rabbis, he had disciples that followed him, that learned from him. But as you all know, hopefully by now, as first year theologians, that Jesus was different than the other rabbis, the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Why was he different? What does scripture say? Yeah, he preached on his own authority. Instead of the others who said, well, Moses said this, Jesus taught with authority. If you look at Matthew 27, verses 28 to 29, the plenty of other instances. Why? Because he was the son of God. He, he was the word. He was the logos. And that authority, of course, came directly from the father. He didn't need to to quote Moses. He was the authority. The problem is, though, and and again, you know, you'll you'll hear this said that, well, Jesus, you know, I I like Jesus. I like his, his moral teachings. He taught me how to live. Well, we've already seen that. No, he's more than just a moral teacher. He's more than just a rabbi. He is God. He's savior. He's the word made flesh. And so. Unlike, let's say, another teacher who could tell you what to do, in everything Jesus did, he embodied the law. And Pope Benedict says that he is the Torah. This is what I love. Jesus is the Torah. He understands himself as the Torah, as the word of God in person. So this is why we don't we not only study what he taught, but we also study the mysteries of his life. What can we learn from his scourging of the pillar? What can we learn from the resurrection? What can we learn from the wedding at Cana? He is the, the embodiment of it. So he'll also, of course, Benedict also says he's the also the embodiment of the temple. And he's also the Sabbath. My yoke is easy and my burden is light comes right before his commentary on the Sabbath. So Jesus embodies all of that. 
And so, yeah, so Jesus is the Torah. Jesus is the embodiment of the law. And the catechism has a section on this. So, again, keeping in mind here, Christ is the teacher. He teaches about the kingdom. He teaches about the law. He teaches how to live. But he primarily came in the moral sense to teach us and to give us this new law. And so under the section on law, the Catechism 1965 to 1974 talks about the new law, which he also calls the law of the gospel. So once again, here we're taking these terms and we're kind of intertwining with other terms. It could get confusing. I get it. So we've already looked, and again, I may change this a bit next year when I teach this, that according to the tradition of the church, according to Aquinas, according to the catechism, what is the new law? Or who is the new law? Brother, who's the new law? The Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. Catechism 1966. The new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. So remember, it's not just the graces that come with the Holy Spirit. It is the grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit, depending on how you want to translate it, poured into our hearts. And this comes... This new law comes with the new covenant, sealed in the blood of Christ. And you're going to see that the catechism goes into all this different description of the new law. But basically, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. That is the new law. Written on the tablets of your hearts. Not stonate tablets, but life-giving hearts filled with blood Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that. It's not, we just follow the Spirit. According to Aquinas, and here you'll see according to the Catechism, there are written parts, spoken parts, legal parts of the new law. So I, I want to call it written, but you could say written or spoken. This is where it gets practical. It has content. You could call it the content of the new law. And we're going to look at, at, at this in a little bit. What are, the, what are the parts of or the content of the new law? It is important to know, before we sort of begin to look at that, what are these contents? That it is the perfection, the fulfillment of the old law. Catechism 1967 kind of sums that up. And then 1968. The law of the gospel, the new law, The Lord's Sermon on the Mount, far from abolishing or devaluing the moral prescription of the old law, releases their hidden potential and as new demands rise from them, it reveals the entire divine and human truth. 
that does not add new external precepts, but proceeds to reform the heart, the root of human acts, where man chooses between pure and the impure, where faith, hope, and charity are formed, and with them the other virtues. The gospel thus brings the law to its fullness through imitation of the perfection of the Heavenly Father, through forgiveness of enemies, and prayer for persecutors, and emulation of the divine generosity. So what this is showing is that this, this con, let's call it the content of the new law, is primarily the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Primarily the Sermon. So if we want to see what should it look like to live out a life in the Spirit, what does it look like to live out this law written in your hearts, you're going to know it by looking at the Sermon on the Mount, to study it, to reflect upon it. Aquinas calls it the text of the new law. And so that's why, even though, yeah, we can study all kinds of different things, we're going to focus primarily on the Sermon on the Mount. But what else does this show us? So, again, if there's... I also want to put covenant here. If you have covenant, this is the new covenant, the old covenant. We talked about how laws come along with that. That... If these are both words spoken, given to us, there's a dialogue. And so our dialogue, our response, is going to be living out a life in the Spirit. It's going to be forgiving our enemies. It's going to be practicing faith, hope, and charity. This is our our response in the dialogue. It's not just enough to say, oh, look, the Lord's poured it into our hearts. Okay, well, we need to live it out. Our deeds and actions and our words need to show that we're living it. But the Catechism will go on to say that there are other parts or content of the new law. It's kind of like puts all kinds of things together. 1969, paragraph 1969, talks about the acts of religion. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. It's part of the new law. 1970 says it's summed up in the golden rule. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. 1970 also says that the whole entire law is contained in the twofold commandment to love God and neighbor. Just as we saw that the old law, in a certain sense, could be summed up in that too. And it also includes the evangelical councils, and the moral catechesis of the apostles will look particularly at Paul's um, teaching next week. So there's a lot of content, but we're not going to focus on most of those things. We're going to focus for the sake of time and efficiency on the Sermon on the Mount. And then paragraph 1972 talks about what are the other names of the new law? Sort of summing it up for you. It says it's a law of love because it makes us act out of the love infused by the Holy Spirit rather than from fear. Follow this law or you'll be punished. No. The love is poured into our hearts. We want to, to do the right thing because we know God loves us and we love him. 
It's a law of grace because it confers the strength of grace to act by means of faith in the sacraments. Actual grace, sanctifying grace, we're going to get to that when we look at anthropology. And finally, a law of freedom because it sets us free from the ritual and juridical observances of the old law, inclines us to act spontaneously by the prompting of charity, and finally lets us pass from the condition of a servant who does not know what his master is doing to that of a friend in Christ. So I think you could also say here too, you know, here you're a servant in the old law, and here you're a friend, but more than that, you're a son. Sharing in the very life of the Trinity because of the gift of the Spirit that's poured into your hearts. So yeah, that that section of the catechism, it's kind of all over the place. But basically, it is the law of the gospel. Paul's going to really help us understand this. But it is going to be the way that we live it out. It's going to be the way that we follow Christ. In the Sequela Christi, as a rabbi, we follow him as a person. He gives the gift of the Spirit poured in our hearts. But he also gives us concrete moral teaching. Although it is not so much a bunch of thou shalt nots, but an appeal to something that is much deeper, the heart. So we're going to spend a lot of time, as you might imagine, or as I said, looking specifically at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and how they part of the moral life. Before we sort of move specifically in that, do any of y'all have any questions or comments? It's all perfectly clear. I think you'll get what it is. Yeah, and so you're priest of the new covenant. You're going to be priest of the new law. As we're going to see, you still have to pay attention to the old law and the commandments, but it's perfected in what Christ teaches us. So let's give like a brief introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. We can find many moral teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, but the central and most distinctive text is the Sermon on the Mount. It's all sort of summed up there. It's like a gathering of sayings of Jesus and this long discourse like historians of antiquity did. So I'm not going to get, you could talk to Father Nye and Dr. Mastanak about all that, how it came to be. I, I suppose I'll ask Dr. Mastanak about the, uh, the, the harem, didn't you? Did he try to explain it? We had a discussion about it. Uh, that, that Bible stuff's confusing, but interesting. So what's happened? Yes. So is the Sermon on the Mount and the New Law mainly focused on the fulfillment of the moral law, of the old law, or the old Well, I mean, in a certain sense, Christ fulfilled the old law by his, his, his existence, um, by him perfect, living it out perfectly. Um, but remember, the old law, there are different t- parts of the old law. Here, the Sermon on the Mount is not about ritual purification. 
It's not about all the things you can eat and you can't eat or liturgical. It's about the moral law. So it's mostly going to be connected to, I think, the Ten Commandments. It's the fulfillment of all of it, but particularly the moral precepts. Remember we talked about the different levels of the, the law, of the old law? It's mostly the moral life here of how we live it out. I, I, I think you could say, well, it's not because I said so. It's because you could get hurt. I mean, there's a certain, remember the old law. But when you you got to look at Paul to really understand this. And so maybe I should put Paul before Jesus, but it would seem bad for me to put Paul before Jesus because Jesus is Jesus. Um, I think it's like you don't do it because of the risk of getting hurt. Just like the old law is there to point out sin. It just can't redeem you. You need Christ, you need the Spirit to be able to be redeemed. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Maybe Christ gives more of a reason why. But I think the next lesson will explain to you what the real difference is, or at least as far as I see it, and then Paul will build on it. But insofar as you say, because the old law, you could understand why that was there. It was there to set you apart from the pagans. Here... If you're going to say that it's more than just a reason, the parents telling you this is why you should do it, it's more of an appeal to the heart. Reason is still there. It's, it goes something deeper. So if you even look at Matt at the beginning, so Jesus is presented as the new Moses, as we talked about. So we have Mount, the Mount of Beatitudes. What does that coincide with? What is the what does it fulfill in the Old Testament? Mount Sinai, and he is there giving the Torah, speaking the Sermon on the Mount, as the new Moses did, and in the context of the new covenant. So for the Jewish reader at the time, when it said, oh, wait a second, he's going to this mountain, and actually the Greek, it says, he opened his mouth to teach them. That phrase, he opened his mouth to teach them, is in the Old Testament, in Exodus. Moses was on the mountain and he opened his mouth. Very clearly, Matthew was saying, he is the new Moses, he's giving the new law, this is the new covenant. But of course, we have greater than Moses here. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's more than just a prophet because he speaks on his own authority. Pope Benedict in Jesus of Nazareth says, Jesus sits on the cathedra of Moses. But he does so not after the manner of teachers who were trained for the job in a school. He sits there as the greater Moses, who broadens the covenant to include all nations. Significant. So this is not just, oh, the covenant is for Israel. The covenant now is for everyone. And that's what Paul really begins to develop in his, um, his teaching. So as Christ is greater than Moses... So, too, the Sermon on the Mount goes beyond the old external law and speaks to the heart. It doesn't abolish it. Christ fulfills it. But it's those commandments, the moral precepts that continue to remain. But it, it, and I guess in a certain sense, maybe it's like, what disposition are we taking? What does true holiness mean? Is it simply following the law and not committing adultery? 
Or is there going to be an interior transformation and purification of the heart? We're going to talk about that mostly in the next hour. So I really do, there are different ways of looking at and understanding the sermon. But I don't think anyone's going to deny that it is the central moral teaching of Jesus. It is that text of the new law. What's the overall context here in Gospel of Matthew? Remember, Luke has the Sermon on the Plain. We're looking at the, the Sermon on the Mount. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the infancy narrative and ends with the Passion and Resurrection account. And so in the body of the Gospel, there are situated five discourses. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of the five discourses of Jesus, coming right there at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. What does it come right after? It comes right after Jesus' first... What are Jesus' first words in his public ministry? Well, his first words that he says very loudly. Repent and believe the good news. So I, I think this is so important. Remember what we talked about repenting the good news. The first step for, to following Jesus in the sequela Christi, the first step of discipleship, is repentance and conversion. Metanoia. So here, hey y'all, repent and believe the good news. Okay, I've repented. What do I? What is the good news? How do I? Uh, I've started following Jesus. How do I act on it? I'm gonna tell you what my disciple looks like, how one lives this out. Matthew's gospel, of course, is that gospel to the Gentiles. And so here Jesus is speaking to a very large crowd. You can imagine many Jews, possibly some Gentiles. For Ratzinger, what happens is, is Jesus is speaking to the crowd He's establishing the new, the new Israel. As they hear the law, they are being established as the new Israel. So there's an ecclesial dimension. But you need to read um, that section from Jesus of Nazareth. So yeah, so you want to situate the sermon within the context of the gospel, with what Matthew's intention is. So getting to the sermon itself, how do we break it down? And throughout the history, there have been many commentaries who have divided it into either seven or five parts. Augustine, as we'll see, is the most famous, divided it according to seven parts because Augustine was really into numbers. And he also could tie it to the Beatitudes. He saw them as seven Beatitudes instead of eight. Each beatitude summarizes a different part of the Sermon on the Mount. I, though, am going to take all the Pink Airs' version, and he has it into five parts. Five parts. So let's look at that. Let's look at these five parts. Now, granted, 
Y'all, I remember whenever I had this class and my mind was being blown. I'm like, oh, I should be reading the Sermon of the Mount. It's so important. Why haven't I thought of that? Um, that first semester was praying on the Sermon of the Mount, reading commentaries on it and letting it seek in. And, and it really, it's true, as we're going to talk about. I mean, it has informed so much of my own preaching and my moral teaching. Um, you think you think if seminarians, your mind's blown, go teach high schoolers this. The high schoolers' minds are going to be blown. They've never thought about it that way. So the first part is obviously the Beatitudes. Man, and you could spend all semester just in the Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So it's enough to say that, like, he opens his mouth, he begins to teach. What would you say are the Beatitudes in comparison to the sermon? Is in the old law, what's its what's its comparison to the old law? Ten Commandments. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments is a summary of the old the old law. The Beatitudes is a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. And we could spend a lot of time going over the Beatitudes. So what I did is I had another class on it. So what I did is I just took my outline, turned it into a PDF, and uploaded it. So if you want to go down each of them. There are so many books of the Beatitudes. Father Pinkairs has one. Uh, I think it's called God's Way, The Path to Happiness. I think it may be out of print. But he goes over it. Probably one of my favorites is Father Jacques Philippe's Book of the Beatitudes, The Eight Doors to the Kingdom of Heaven. You can find a ton of them. And everybody has different commentaries. Everybody's got a different opinion. This is what it means. Um, I'm sure, I don't know, do any of, you, any of you have any commentaries in the Beatitudes that you've really liked? Any books on them? Um, uh there, there, there's so many things that you could get into. I just want to make a couple of points about it. Because, of course, Beatitudes is about happiness. So this was the whole thing when we realized the, the, the purpose of the moral life is happiness. Where does this come from? It comes from the Beatitudes. If you want to be happy, and this is the Ten Commandments of the New Law, the Eight Commandments... This is where it comes from. Christ's message is about happiness. Not, of course, as Thomas says, worldly happiness, but happiness that is ordered towards heaven. The beatitude. Blessedness. One of the things, though, that I think is a challenge, you know, is what we'll see, the beatitudes... How does it relate to the moral life? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Some of it's obvious. Like, okay, what are you doing to promote peace? Um, one of the, the uh, again, confession, one of the best confessions I've ever made is the priest challenged me, and he gave it to me, to examine my conscience according to the Beatitudes. 
Um, and I think you could probably find some out there, um, and, or maybe even make your own. I guess it's been so long ago. But, like, blessed the poor spirit. How humble have I been? You know, mourn. Have I felt compassion for other people? Have I felt sorry for my sin? Have I been merciful? How have I done whenever I fail or am persecuted? And, and I really think if you could either find one or make uh, one of these, I used to do this for the high schoolers. Like, okay, we're going to make our examination of conscience, but instead of just going in there and reading off of the Ten Commandments, which is good, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, hey, if you're committing grave sin, this is good, but we need to move to the next level. How are we going to go to the heart? How are we going to, blessed are the pure of heart. What does it mean to be pure of heart? How are we going to live that out? That's the real challenge. So I really think examination of conscience, and particularly seminarians, spend some time, maybe in your retreat, really. That, along with the hymn to love, which we've already talked about, um, of Paul, man, that, that's, that's going to really get to the heart of it. It's easy to say, well, I did a good job. I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't commit adultery this week. Great. You know, but did, did you lust? So, so much that we could talk about that. I'm not going to get into it much. The second part is the big part, the fulfillment of the law. What does it mean to fulfill, to truly fulfill the law? This is 5, 13 to 48. He begins with the similes of salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. Why? Why does he talk about salt and light at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount if this is the new law, of the text of the new law? Because guess what? Your moral life is not just for you. It's for other people. You live a life in Christ, you are going to be a witness to other people. So in a certain sense, it's being overdoing. You are who you're supposed to be. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna convert others. He then goes on to say teaching about the law, that he's not here to abolish the old law, but to fulfill it in himself. It's something more than simple exterior practices to something interior. And this is where he goes into, you have heard that it was said. You have heard it said, by whom? By Moses. But I'm telling you, you got to go deeper. He's not contradicting Moses, but you got to go deeper. So the first is the teaching about anger. Hey, you, you can't even hate somebody in your heart. Teaching about adultery. Don't even lust in your heart. We're going to look a lot of that next semester. And from that, the teaching about divorce. Here he's going back to the beginning. In the beginning, it was not so. Man and woman, stay together. Teaching about oaths, oaths, not oats, oaths. Being honest so that no one doubts your word and you don't need to swear. So basically, yeah, you could swear, but you should just be an honest person. So you don't need to do that. That people know you're honest. The lex talionis, 
the teaching about the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. No, it's what it was. And that whole Lex Talionis was there for an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. So you didn't go, oh, I'm going to take three eyes or I'm going to lop your head off. No. Here, turn the other cheek. And then finally, of course, here, the teaching about the love of enemies. To be perfect as your father is perfect. Not perfectionism. We're going to see really quickly why not perfectionism doesn't work. So here, you, you, you could hate your enemies back in the, like, you hurt me? God's going to punch the teeth in your mouth. No, we, we got to turn the other cheek, y'all. doesn't mean we can't have self-defense. we got to love our enemies. So you could see, studying the sermon in light of that Old Testament, how Christ is not denying it, but fulfilling it by going inside. The next part... Um, is the fulfillment of the three principal acts of religion. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which, of course, y'all could just sit and focus on this section here. Chapter 6, verses 118. About giving alms, about praying, and about fasting. Interesting is kind of right here in the middle is the Lord's Prayer. Christ teaches us to pray, to say our Father. Again, it's not like, hey, you know, don't, what matters is what's going on the inside. In fact, don't dress up like you're all poor and gross. Smile, be happy. Don't let people know that you're fasting. The next section is called the various sayings. Jesus gives us keeping your treasure in heaven, custody of the eyes, the light of the body, the teaching on mammon, a beautiful passage on dependence on God, total dependence. The lilies of the field neither tall nor spin. Trust in me. So again, here you're seeing Christ is not giving explicit commandments, but it's the deeper attitude. Don't judge others. Don't throw your pearls before swines and how God's goodness and his willingness to answer our prayers. So these are all that 619 to 711. This is the biggest section. So, you know, it's your attitude towards created reality, your attitudes towards God, your attitude towards others. And then finally, the conclusion. But what's important about the conclusion is here you have the golden rule. What's come to be known as the golden rule. Father Pinker says that, it, you know, do unto others as you'd have done to you. This is a, a practical criterion for discernment. Pope Francis says this rule points us in a clear direction. 
Let us treat others with the same passion and compassion with which we want to be treated. Let us seek for others the same possibilities which we seek for ourselves. Let us help others to grow as we would like to be helped ourselves. In a word, if we want security, let us give security. If we want life, let us give life. If we want opportunities, let us provide opportunities. And that same, whatever yardstick we use with others is going to be used back with us. And so, you know, and really, it's true as as a priest, a priest, you realize that when you are tempted to shame somebody or light into someone, think to yourself, would I like it if they did that to me? Probably not. So I'm not going to do it to them. You know, when I want this person yelling at me, probably not. I don't want it done done to me either. But I want this person making fun of me or gossiping about me. No, I wouldn't, so I'm not going to do it about them. So important. And then within that, he talks about the narrow gate. Of course, the way with Christ is not an easy one. False prophets, the true disciple, and the two foundations of placing your house on rock or on sand, uh, depending on which one. So there's a lot of stuff here, which is not necessarily going to be as well organized or divided in the same way that ex- the Exodus is, Exodus is, but there's not a lot of specifics. I mean, they're, they're general things. Love your neighbor. Be care, beware of false prophets. Look at the fruit that people produce. It's a collection of sayings, so it's not even structured like the Code of Hammurabi or some other law book, and it is very broad. Why do you think, I mean, why did Jesus does what he does? I have no idea. You know, he's the son of God. Why would you think, y'all, that Christ would choose to, in giving us these sayings, or Matthew putting them together, however you want to perceive it, why aren't why aren't there more specifics? I mean, there are certain specifics. Don't lust in your heart. Why does it tend to be a collection of sayings and aphorisms? What's the what's the purpose? Because especially like in contrast to the Pharisaical tradition of the law, this is not the new covenant is not asking for the kind of dialogical response that's just adherence to these as rules of law, but engagement with the dialogue. Um, so to give too many like pharisaical rules is to facilitate a certain kind of communication. Okay, I really like that. In fact, I, that's not what I was thinking, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take that. Okay, let's take the theme of dialogue that we've been talking about. So here, Christ comes to establish the new covenant in his blood. He's the new Moses. He gives us this new law, which is looks like a lot different than the old law, but it's all going to be seen within the context of dialogue. So then give me an example. If we're going to take what Stephen says there, what would the dialogue between 
God, again, covenant is between persons, an exchange of self rather than exchange of goods, which I'll probably studied your covenant theology before. What well, give me like a lived example? Like what would you how would you describe the covenant of the dialogue in the old law? What would that dialogue look like? You're correct, but but you're right. But more than that, like, what would our response look like? I'm trying to use, I try to be a bit more creative here. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong in thinking of this because I'm coming up to the top of my head because Stephen is prompting me to to think out, out, outside of the box. I would say that the dialogue would be like me coming up and saying, uh, "Will, I want to have a dialogue with you." Here's your script. I'm going to say what I want, but you have to follow the script. This is when I say whatever, I'll just follow the script. Is that a real dialogue? It looks like it, but what is lacking? Your freedom to make your own response. I mean, in a certain sense, you can, but you're going to go off script. So you could say that maybe in the first it's a very scripted dialogue. So even if you're going to say the script is your response is yes, I will, I will, I will follow. In Jesus's dialogue here in the new law, what's there that wouldn't be there if the dialogue was governed by a script? Freedom. 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 Now, of course, as we're going to see, it's just not freedom to do whatever you want, but it's freedom with the Holy Spirit, the new law poured into your hearts, which allows for a creative response. Not creative in the sense of, I'm going to go smoke some cocaine, and I'm going to be creative. No. You follow crack is smoking cocaine, for those who want to think about that, or smoking meth, or whatever you like to do. I'm not into the drugs, but you're, you're free to make your own response. Granted, there are going to be responses that are wrong, but the Lord's not going to tell you what to do. I always love it like it's the, it's the parable of the talents. Here are your talents. Go make me some money. I'm not telling you how to make money. Just go invest. You choose what's good for you, and you're going to figure it out. And so it opens up with Christ to like a much freer dialogue, a more creative dialogue, one that doesn't feed us the words. We choose the words. So, you know, it's kind of like, we're going to date myself a little bit. It's like Choose Your Own Adventure. Remember those books? You, you, it's not just one script. You can make your own script. Price is respecting our freedom. He tells you kind of, these are the general guidelines, what it wants you to do, but you're free to ad-lib. And so it's going to have a greater respect for human freedom. The barriers are going to be a little bit different. So I think that's a great way of looking at it. Um, because my ultimate goal was to talk about how it does focus on and respect the gift of human freedom. Now, freedom understood within truth, but kind of saying you're no longer a kid. You're no longer a servant where I tell you what to do. You are a son. And if that's the real case, the particle son, the father's not going to force you to stay in the house. He's not going to force you to come in the house. 
You, the father could say, no, you have no right to this inheritance. You will stay in this house. That's the old law. But the new law is, hey, I, I, you're going to go make some dumb decisions. But you're free to make those decisions. So the dialogue then becomes, instead of slave to master, it becomes son and father. And a father who respects the son, who listens to the son. That's what prayer is. Prayer becomes that dialogue. Something to consider. Now, why don't we go ahead and take about a 10-minute break, and then come back, and we're going to dive into how do we put this into practice. We're going to get some fun stuff.